Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Oh boy, what is that? It's a it's it's crack. This is literally somebody was so lovely about mm-hmm. three weeks ago. We talked to an extraordinary guy whose mm-hmm. company mm-hmm. is called Boxu. Boxu.com. Boxu. Yeah. And on the inside of the box, it says happy snacking. Okay. Sometimes I feel like I'm Ed McMahon to you, John. It's a a curated subscription box of Japanese snacks. And again, I've had a few Japanese snacks and one I like uh, as much as the next, but I've yet to have the thing that was mind alteringly delicious and irresistible. And I have right, now, you know what, you know what? Why, don't you write, why don't you write, there you go. There's your answer. Write your article on that. Okay. There's I'm your going answer. To. That was the question. Here's the answer. What's that? This is oh. the magazine that comes with it. You know and what it says on the front there in Japanese? Uh, it is seasons, right? It says Boyajian. Olive oil. That's what it says on the Japanese. Yes, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, we can talk about this more, but I just wanted to tell you that these are the Funwari Meijin Mochi Puffs. Can I tell you that Funwari is a dirty they word? Are, now we're going to get thrown off of YouTube. They're addictive. They're just addictive. Flat out, plain old fashioned addictive. And the reason I'm talking about them before our next guest and first and only guest today comes on mm-hmm. is because there's a similarity. Mm-hmm. There are people who have literally invented new categories and curated boxes and subscription boxes is nothing new. But taking us to another part of the world with these extraordinary snacks and teaching us about the best of something, there's a lot of something new about Boxu. But when we do this today, we're actually talking to someone who has literally created a brand new category of food. Michael, do you have any olive oil in your house? Of course I have olive oil in my house. Extra you, virgin. Right. Do you have any flavored oils or balsamic vinegar or flavored vinegars in your house? I love flavored balsamic vinegar. It's my okay. all-time favorite. I love fig. For some reason, there's something about the fig balsamic vinegar that's mind-boggling. But oils, we do like, to, I like to have a little, you know, little oils flavor every once in a while. You so really got to be careful. When you cook like we do, you got you to use the right. You know, right. It also keeps you young. There are a so, cat- so so this guy that's coming on is from Massachusetts. He actually go ahead. He was friends with Paul Revere. He was. But friends you couldn't with- tell that. That's how young he is. He was friends with Julia Child. Julia Child loved his stuff. John Boyajian is a fantastic food entrepreneur, on. and Look we're going to talk about how he revelized whatever's in your home right now. You can draw a direct line back to John Boyajian because he was the first to create 
flavored oils. And he became the king because he does garlic oils and lemon oils and herb oils, not the kind that you see in bottles with, you know, for decorative purposes. These are the real deal used by the best chefs in the world. It is widely acknowledged that John Boyajian single-handedly practically created this category alongside his main business at the time, or maybe this was the second business or the main business. We'll get to the history of that in a minute. But John also used to be a purveyor of caviar. Mm. And the caviar industry changed substantially. But back in the day, when he started his business, the specialty food business was basically those imported specialty products from around the world. Very few of them were being made here in the United States. There were very few food entrepreneurs at that time. And fast forward to today, and the entire game has changed and shifted. One of the people we have to thank for that is John Boyajian, one of the connoisseurs who helped get us and lift us all up here to where we are now in the food world, from the chef side to the consumer side. There's not a person on Food Network that doesn't love his stuff. There isn't a person who cooks today that isn't using one of these fantastic flavored oils or flavored vinegars that can't say thank you to John Boyajian. So we're going to do it for them. We're going to welcome him. And what an honor it is. He's the Robert Mondavi of flavored Ooh. oils. He's the king who invented the category. He is, of course, my friend, John Boyajian. As a native Bostonian, he was one of the guys who, like the food nerds that we were, we there weren't that many of us, enough to sustain a business but not like today. So it's an, a real treat to welcome an old friend back and onto the show. Hi, John. Hi, thank you so much. And it's a real treat to be on your show. Talk a little bit about Boyajin historically and how you started the company. That's quite a story. <laughs> um, historically, you know the, the 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 honest answer is the company started a, a, as an accident. It was really an accident. Every every product that we created came to be as a commercial product accident. I started originally uh, in business as a way to make money for graduate school, and uh, started out in the lobster business. Being from from uh, the Boston area, uh, I knew a little bit about the the lobster business. Started out in the lobster business this way. I have family in France and was visiting a cousin in Paris back in 1978, I think it was. And he had a friend of his from Belgium over for dinner who was in the uh, produce business. He was a produce importer. And he used to bring in fruits and vegetables from the United States as well as other parts of the world. And as we were talking over dinner, he said, oh, you're from Boston. There's a lot of lobster in Boston. I said, yeah, there is. He said, well, I'm really interested in bringing lobster in. Maybe you can help me. So I'll uh, make a long story short. We made an agreement. I found some lobster for him. Uh, he ordered 400 pounds of essentially chicken lobsters. Uh, I found out how to uh, ship it over to him. And he gave me 25 cents a pound for my trouble. And I made 100 bucks for doing nothing. I thought, wow, this is great. You didn't have to take physical possession of the lobsters. You didn't have to do anything. You kind of brokered the deal. So I kind of, well, we actually, we got to a point where we were actually packing the lobsters and putting them on the plane and, and shipping them over. And that's, uh, and so it, it grew, that business grew. And um, in 1980, uh, I was, uh, I, I, I was sent a newspaper article by a friend of mine's grandmother. Uh, I'm Armenian. 
and she sent me this newspaper article from an Armenian newspaper about this very well-known Armenian family named Petrosian in Paris. And they were the, and still are, the biggest name in caviar and all of the different uh, uh, you know, luxury food products in Europe. So I gave them a call and said, um, want to talk about lobster? And they said, sure. Well, they weren't interested in lobster, but they liked me and wanted to know ultimately if I'd like to work with them in the United States. And they actually offered me an opportunity to move to New York City and learn the caviar business. Um, I still had one, one foot in school and one foot in business, wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I really didn't want to move to New York. So uh, instead, I, I said, well, yeah, I really don't want to move to New York, but I'll, I'll distribute your caviar in, uh, you know, in, in the Boston area. Why don't you teach me the caviar business? So they did. And that's how it started. And we had, I, I say we, there were, there were two of us and then three of us uh, working in this little this little crammed area, this office uh, in in, uh, in South Boston. Now it's called the Seaport District. Back then it was now uh, it's fancy. And now it's really fancy. Back then it was anything but fancy. We had we had sublet 800 square feet of space from an artist's co-op, and uh, to to uh, do our business out of. And we rent when we ran out of space, we rented a about a 1500 square foot space, uh, an old an old drugstore on the street level in right on the Cambridge Belmont line about a mile out of Harvard Square. And the Boston Globe mistakenly wrote that we'd opened a retail store. So the story broke just before Thanksgiving and people started coming in and we couldn't believe all the people that were coming in. I said, well, what else can we sell these people? And one of the first things I thought of was garlic oil. Being Armenian, we use olive oil for everything. Uh, we We use butter for Christmas and Easter holiday desserts. But other than that, we use olive oil for everything, especially for... I mean, really, for everything. I was going to say, especially for pilaf, but we do use butter in our pilaf, but we use olive oil in our pilaf as well. However, I digress. My grandparents used to make garlic oil uh, fresh from the garden when, when we were kids. They, they would, they'd make garlic oil, they'd make basil oil, they'd make, we called it red pepper oil, uh, dill oil. So I said, let's, let's make garlic oil. So I bought a pound of garlic uh, from the star market down the street, got a gallon of, uh, of uh, olive oil, made some garlic oil, put it up in bottles with some handmade labels, and that's how it started. And you sold out and you made more, and it was just, it was a, a oh, hit. Oh, oh, we made more. People got angry with us because they, they'd say, you know, I came in and there was no more garlic oil. We saved some bottles for me, and, you know, they'd come by and the bottles would be gone. We'd make 12 bottles at a time, then 24 bottles at a time. I remember the first time we brought in a, uh, a 55-gallon drum, we thought we'd really arrived. Um, it was it was pretty funny, and and what happened the the reason we uh, the way we became uh, uh, commercially successful with, with with our oil was it was 1989 1990 there was a recession going on and yeah. I said you know what we need to do something else so we got to find we have to find a bigger market for our for our products and so we sent we sent our garlic oil around to we sent we sent a sample to Williams Sonoma a sample to um, that the then chef's catalog, a, a sample to the just opening King Arthur Baker's catalog. And I knew I wasn't going to hear from any of them. And they all called back and they said, wow, we love this. Where can we get more? And that's how it started. And literally, Michael, this is this is a category that today is is a huge category. No, I understand this. Like I the way he started. Back in 1722, I started the same thing. <laughs> No, that's how I started. I used to own a floral wholesale company, right? And it all started because I sold 
one guy introduced me to roses, right? And you could, hey, if you buy this for five bucks, you could break it apart and sell them for make 40 bucks, just make $35, right? And you just one thing and then another and then another. And you just build this. Eventually, I had huge warehouses, multiple of them. And you had giant walk in coolers and you sold everything, right? And uh, it's, I, I love the, the way he did it because if I had the knowledge that he had, I would have done the same thing. I don't think anyone was going to be buying matzo ball soup out of the containers down in the board. So I figured the flowers were the good thing, right, Jennifer? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you would get standing orders and you would say, oh, this hotel's never going to use us. Never going to. And the next thing you, know, you get these monster orders. And you, because you go in, not, you know, John, you go in and you're like, you expect the feet. So you sort of give them the best deal. You tell them what it is. You don't go in all like salivating. And then they want to work with you. You know, you don't over worry about it. Right, everybody else does in the world, right? Part of the reason we're excited to have John on the show today, Michael, is that in this time of the COVID crisis, entrepreneurs are going to be called upon to tap back into as restaurant operators, as consumer brands, as small food companies and potential behemoths and category changers. Everyone's going to get called upon to become reignited and re-sparked in their passion. And I love you and John talking about your early days as entrepreneurs, because I, I want you to both, and, and John, I'm going to let you take a shot at this first, talk a, a bit, because it sounds, when you tell me this story, this doesn't sound like a Harvard Business School business plan that you wrote that you executed to the T. And, and not everybody's going to believe it, but some of the most big success can come from the serendipity and the magic of just try it. Talk about about how. I mean, did you really start with a business plan, or did you just, you know, was it was it just was it just that easy success for you? Easy, John. She says easy. You know, there was no business plan. I, I, I wish there had a bit, been a business plan, but then again, had there been a business plan, I probably wouldn't have done this. Mm -hmm. it, it certainly wasn't. Um, it certainly wasn't a. Uh, um, a business savvy decision to make in the beginning, but um, no, it, it was it was something that was strictly born from passion. And uh, in fact, I was in graduate school not for business, but actually for education and community development. Oh wow! So it it, it, really, it really was just it was from passion. I grew up uh, food. I grew up with food all around me. Um, uh, you know, food is love. You, you you fall off your bicycle and you skin your knee. Come on, I'll give you something to eat. That kind of thing. And uh, you know, with with uh, generations of tradition of grandmothers and great grandmothers and aunts making food and great, you know, grandfathers and uncles that, you know, at, at the grill, grilling lamb, uh, you pick all these things up and you put the different pieces together and you say, yeah, this will work. Um, if I liked it, other people are going to like it, or at least that was the hope. John, take us and back, take us back to the 1980s uh, when you were having these early successes at the Belmont location. Um, take us back to that mm -hmm. food world. Um, Julia Child was by now a national treasure and a global figure, and she lived yep. literally down the street. Um, and there were young chefs coming up that, whose names we've come to know very well, like Todd English. Tell people about what the food world was like then. You know, the food world was, was new. It was exciting. At least I, I, I can only speak for the, you know, for the Boston area at the time. Um, I'd be lying to you if I told you I, I knew what was going on in New York and San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago because I really didn't, except for the fact that I, um, you know, I sold lobsters to some of the some of the bigger 
restaurant chains. They were the, they were sort of the, you know, the, the buttoned up seafood chains that weren't particularly exciting anyway. But in the Boston area, we had, well, first of all, we had Julia Child, who was a real treasure. She was just a wonderful treasure. And aside from being, you know, a, a, a you know, an incredibly well-known and loved personality, she was a real supporter of the food scene in Boston. She would, she would frequent the restaurants. She would talk to the chefs. She'd talk to, you know, she would talk to the restaurant owners. She'd be encouraging. She'd ask questions and she really cared. And I, I met Julia when she was uh, doing her last big book. I think it's called the way to cook. Mm-hmm. And, um, she needed she needed some uh, product for for photos, and so she called me up one day. And you know, her voice is is just so iconic. I it, I almost thought somebody was was playing a joke on me. <laughs> uh, and and it, no, it, it was her. And she wanted to know if she could get at that time. She wanted to get some foie gras, and uh, she needed some foie gras for for a photo shoot. So we met. We really hit it off, and became great friends. Uh, but some of the other names uh, th- back then, Monsef Medeb, who yeah. I, I think uh, really deserves, he, he deserves special mention because he was the first one to take a shot. He was the first one to go out of the box, at least in my memory, Jennifer. Maybe you can think of somebody else. But he when really you say was, out of the box, you know, you've got a, you've, that box is that white tablecloth restaurant box. Right. Traditionally French, traditionally European not you know not pushing the envelope really um you know the 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 box was um you know escargots and internados of beef for two and stuff like that monsef created a new menu every day (laughs) he was he was cooking he 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 had embraced uh nouvelle cuisine because that was big at the time in boston in the early 80s and just did some really outlandish stuff nobody had ever seen rare um duck breast before in boston you know if you got if you got or if you got a, a you know a, a breast of squab and it came rare you'd go is this, Send it is back. this bird or is this beef or did they not cook it enough and that kind of stuff and you, you you learned you just discovered stuff that was just delicious and incredible but then coming up behind monsef were people like jasper white and lydia shire and uh you know jody adams uh, right. And I and then I'm sorry. Then the Hammersleys and Todd English and gonna, Barbara exactly. Lynch. Exactly. I mean, Barbara Lynch worked with Todd and then went went out on her own. Look what she's done. I mean, she's just how do you how do you even begin to describe what she's done? She's just so spectacular. But there are so many wonderful there's so many wonderful people in, in the Boston food scene, and I, and I could sit here and just keep on and reeling off names for. For, for the next 10 minutes, there are so many talented people and they're such good people. They share with each other. There was a real sense of community. It was a great sense of community. That's a pattern. It's That's a pattern. John, we hear that. We hear when people talk about the old days, not that old, but the, the beginning, right? Um, we, it's a sense of community, right? Jennifer, we hear that. And, and now I see that happening again. I'm in Vegas and I see that I, I saw Todd the other day at a local Vegas restaurant where I talked to them with those chefs. Well, I will tell you this, John, 14, 15 huh. years ago when Todd was here, he would be going to Olives, he would hang out and do his thing, and then he would leave. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's sort of back in this mix right. with each other, helping each other. Jennifer, how do you feel about this? It's absolutely true. And um, one of the things that's important to remember is we, when Julia Child was, was happening, 
there was also a woman named Joyce Chen. Uh, she is, to my yep. mind, as influential as any of the women that came subsequently, Susanna Fu, Anita Lowe. Uh, there are incredible restaurateurs who today, because they don't have a show on Food Network today, don't necessarily get the acclaim uh, that they had earned and deserved because we don't focus as much on that history. Women in, in general were not as acclaimed as some of the men at that time. But you have to remember that there were houses um, that were famous for being the place and it was not as chef driven places like uh, the lockover places like Durgan park. That's right. Uh, uh, or, or, or we could even talk about a place like the Ritz Carlton. Uh, and mm -hmm. that was still one of the most extraordinary places on the planet. It's where I learned about fancy, but I was, you know, yep. a young person. We had so much and it's very difficult to explain how important Boston was to our national food story and scene today, but in part because we also had the Boston Seafood Festival, which was one of the world's most widely um, respected seafood shows, industry shows. We had the Boston um, Food and Wine Festival. The Boston Wine Festival was one of the earliest festivals in the country. We have to point out the fact that things like King Arthur Flower, Stonewall Kitchens, things like... Right. Uh, we have so much that originates out of the New England area. Pepperidge Farm came out of Connecticut. We just had this sense of entrepreneurship and, and food awakening. And there's just so much richness that comes out of New England. And one of those things is the whole specialty food category. And John, you played a huge role. You didn't know that it was specialty food at the time. How did you align with the specialty food industry producers of the fancy food show in the, in the summer and the winter? You know, uh, that's a really good question. I hadn't thought about it until, until this very moment. Actually, we, um, there was, a, there, there used to be a New England food service show in, in, in Boston every spring. And we were approached by the Massachusetts department of agriculture, uh, regarding renting some space there. And, uh, so we did and got to know the people in the, uh, in the uh, specialty food program at the Massachusetts uh, Department of Agriculture. They, it, it wasn't called the specialty foods program at the time, but it's essentially what it was. What they, what they were doing is they were looking for small entrepreneurial driven uh, food companies that were producing uh, special things, things that were new, things that um, uh, spoke to a, a different sense and bringing us all together as a group and, 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 you know, sort of helping us get some exposure, helping us uh, with, uh, you know, to helping us to, to afford space at the New York Fancy Food Show and later at the San Francisco Fancy Food Show. Um, and that's really how that started. And uh, when we, I remember we did our first Fancy Food Show in New York, I believe it was in 1992 or 93. And uh, that's when I really, for the first time, saw that there was a big specialty food world out there. There was, you know, there was a huge, huge market dedicated to specialty foods. Not long after that, the caviar industry changed. And the core component of your business and that exquisite pressed caviar that I just still swoon over when I... When I tell you when I'm dying, bring me some of that, please. <laughs> so you're saying, Jennifer, date, caviar night. Yeah, yeah. We, well, now we know how to get to your heart. You, you, you absolutely 
absolutely positively. The lobster roll. I have I little tins right friend. now. I have two little tins of imperial caviar in my refrigerator. <gasps> Don't tell me. <laughs> well, the, 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 uh, the caviar industry did change, and it, it's really kind of sad what happened. The, the, the caviar industry was very strong up until the breakup of the Soviet Union. Right. And when, up until that time, the Soviet Union and Iran controlled the true caviar market because true caviar was uh, was really caviar, the, the eggs of sturgeon that only came from species in the Caspian Sea. In the, and Iran and Soviet Union controlled the Caspian Sea. And after the after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, it was sort of a free for all in the form of Soviet uh, states. Right. There were there were no limits. Uh, there were no regulations put on fishing. There were no limits put on fishing. There were no there were no quotas. Uh, a lot of the environmental regulations had gone had gone south. Had gone the way of the dodo bird, if you will. So there was an awful lot of pollution that took place. A lot of overfishing that took place. And in a very very short period of time, the sturgeon population in the Caspian Sea was in danger. And it, and it was ultimately added to the uh, what is called the CITES list, the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species list. And uh, we saw it in two, by, we, by 2004, we saw it was happening. Uh, we didn't want, we, I did not want to be involved with it anymore. I, I said, you know what, this, this is unsustainable. It's not right. We're out of here. And a year later, they closed the Caspian Sea and that was it. Since that time, there have been a lot of people raising sturgeon in other parts of the world, some with some with success, some with not a lot of success. Some of the products pretty good. Some an awful lot of it's not very good. Um, it became very, very expensive. And it's certainly not the, the caviar of old. Uh, it's really kind of too bad. Uh, w will we see it come back in our lifetime? Not sure. Um, uh, you know, Jennifer, I always had my caviar at the Petrosian at the front of Bellagio. You know what I mean? That's where I would sit and caviar so, all day. But that was in 2002 and three and four. And then you're right. Hit the wall. Right. And everything changed. Yeah. Everything, everything changed. changed. They even shut down the bar. They don't even do that anymore. Yeah. Um, right. Let's fast forward. Chefs began to discover your oils, the celebrated chefs, the shows. The magazines, you got a tremendous amount of publicity and you've grown the line expansively into mm -hmm. a number of categories. Uh, today, you are still not only the pioneer, but one of the leaders in terms of quality of flavored oils. Talk a little bit about your your product line today. What's the Boyajin line like today? The Boyajin line today is pretty much uh, three different Three different uh, lines. We have a line of naturally infused olive oils. By naturally infused, I mean we don't use any flavors, we don't use any extracts, uh, natural or otherwise. When we make garlic oil, we take one to two tons of fresh California garlic, we crush it, and in the oil it goes. Uh, we're the only company in the United States that does it that way. I'm guessing because the the uh, the the efforts that we have to go to to make sure that that to to ensure food safety. Right. Uh, are really extraordinary. Uh, I don't think most people would want to go through that. The record keeping is, is really laborious. Uh, the uh, monitoring that we get from, from Global Food Safety Initiative and from the FDA is uh, extensive, but it's worth it for us. It's, uh, it's, uh, it creates a beautiful product. 
you talk about a business plan. I think most business plans would say it doesn't make any sense to take a product that other people can make in a day that takes us eight weeks to make. Um, that that's that's uh, that's what makes us different as far as our infused oils are concerned. And, and we just keep on adding to the number of different kinds of infusions that we do. Our biggest our biggest seller certainly is garlic. Uh, we also do uh, one of our other biggest, bigger, big sellers is basil. We do mm -hmm. a rosemary oil. We do a number of different kinds of hot oils, different kinds of chili oils, whether it's habanero or jalapeno or roasted chili. And then the, the second part of our line is uh, our, uh, our different vinegars. And again, we make them uh, in that same spirit. We don't add anything uh, unnatural to it. We don't add any sugar to it. We don't add any flavors to our vinegars. Uh, they're made from fruit juices. Our maple vinegar is is literally made from a fermented maple syrup. It's a it's a uh, a recipe that we learned up in Vermont. Uh, that that's a whole show in and of itself, Jennifer. <laughs> the, the woman the that trip taught to us Vermont. It's it's quite a story. But um, so we do we do uh, we don't do a, a a vast line of vinegars, but the vinegars we do are very very good, and and um, the chefs really appreciate them. We do. Uh, we we bring in a couple of different kinds of vinegar from Modena, Italy, some different kinds of balsamic vinegars, and then we do our magic with those vinegars. Whether it's a fig balsamic or a cocoa balsamic or a cherry balsamic, and again, we don't use any flavors. We use only the real fruit juices, or or in this case, or in the case of cocoa or coffee, or coffee, we use real espresso, real uh, real cocoa nibs, and it makes it, it makes a real difference. The third category would be our baking essentials. And the headliners of, of our baking essentials are our pure citrus oils, and they are really unique to the market. And the pure citrus oil is the oil that is pressed right from the rind of the fruit. So, you know, if you take a, a, a piece of lemon and you take a, a lemon rind and you, and you twist it, if you're making a twist to go in your cocktail, you see that little oil that comes to the top of the skin. That's what this is. And what we do is we take... Uh, we take lemon rind or orange rind or lime rind and we press them to, to extract the oil. And uh, it's done naturally at ambient temperature. We don't use any chemicals to do this. And uh, to give you an idea of how intense this is, to make a three and a half ounce bottle of lemon oil takes about 300 lemons. Wow. The product is extremely intense and it's extremely pure and clean. So if somebody's looking for, and be, so if somebody's looking for a really wonderful lemon aroma or orange aroma, any kind of citrus aroma, they use our citrus oils. And because they're so intense, one doesn't have to use very much of it. And because because you can get away with using so little, you you don't have to change any the the the, um, the ratios in any recipe because it's it, it's 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 so non-invasive when it comes to how it affects a recipe, except for its flavor and its aroma. John, before we let you go, because we've only got about five minutes left, um, where do you think we're going as a food world, given the COVID has basically forced us all to to uh, put on the brakes? I'm going to imagine you've been very busy because people are ordering products into their home to cook with. Has it been busy for you, or are you seeing a, a different dynamic? Well, it's been very busy. We were, uh, I think, uh, and it's funny because we, we talked to, I've talked with a number of uh, colleagues who are in the specialty food business. And we've all said the same thing. We were all sort of caught unaware by this. When, when, when the, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, all of us saw our restaurant business go away. What we didn't expect, and we were all surprised by, was 
how robust our retail business became. So whether it's retail products that we sell directly under, under the Boyajan label or products that we sell as ingredients to manufacturers who manufacture for retail, the business became really, really robust to the point we were doing Christmas numbers and double Christmas numbers. Wow. When I say Christmas, I mean Christmas. So that tells me what's happening, what's happening in the in the uh, in our world is that people aren't going to restaurants. They're staying at home. Uh, you know, they're watching the food, the, the food network. They're 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 going online. They're looking at recipes and they're cooking. And that's wonderful. They're, they're you know, the people have come to appreciate food um, as something to, to create and to enjoy as opposed to something just to eat. And uh, we're seeing it in our business. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are seeing it in their businesses. And that's what's happening. Do you, um, Michael, have you ever anticipated that where we all go next, as you look in your crystal ball, is going to be that, that we're going to continue to cook at home? I, my crystal ball is saying everyone's going to be going to Boyajian and buying all of their uh, their oils and their <laughs> vinegars and their baking essentials. That's what my crystal ball is saying. But what about those stores? Well, they're closed now. I guess you really can't. But you know, John, all those oil stores, oil and vinegar stores. Where they have the big vats of oil and you walk in. Are you familiar? Do they have those up in Boston too? Because they have some here in Vegas. Yeah, somebody did one. It's kind of neat. Yeah, well, you talking about the olive oil stores? Yeah, they're neat, right? They're a little neat. I mean, it's a good way to get educated well, they, if they, they do they it are. right. Didn't Mary Taylor do that? Who's that? It wasn't uh isn't it a Mary Taylor? Oh, I don't know Mary Taylor. We need to open Boyajian stores like that, Jennifer. That's yeah, no, it's true. It's and true. you know what we can call it? Um, Get yeah. a little drip of John. We'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, whatever happened to the lobster business? So the lobster business uh, went away. This is really interesting. When I started in the lobster business, uh, the, Amer the American dollar was a very good bargain against European currencies. And by 1980, the dollar became very strong and, and people in Europe weren't so interested in buying American lobsters anymore. They, they liked Canadian lobsters because the Canadian dollar was a lot, was, was a lot uh, better, uh, a much better bargain for them. So by, by the late 1980, we were out of the lobster business and fully entrenched in, in the caviar business and smoked salmon business. Yeah. By uh, the mid '80s, we were packing caviar under our own label and smoking smoking our own salmon, etc., uh, etc. Et and just we, you know, we we really never had a plan. We just kind of went with it. Whatever happened, yeah, that's called happened. organic. Can I just say, Michael, it's not possible for me to explain to you when you went to Petrosian and you had the czar cut salmon, that glistening gem jewel flesh. That was so just toothsome and so. All right, all right. Pull her down, John. Pull her down. All right. Come I'm on. you. It's like watching the movie Up. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. As I as I sail off on Yes, my as you sail off. All right. This is beautiful. We love John. Right? We love John. Yeah, let's get him back on with some chefs. Let him go at it. John, talk about some of your favorite chefs who are using your products, even if they're closed temporarily. Oh. Well, you know, every, <laughs> unfortunately, everybody's closed today. Um, some of my favorite chefs, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, there's, there's a restaurant in San Francisco called Delfina, 
Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you I don't know the chef's name, but he uses our stuff, and and I and I love his restaurant. He's over in the Mission District. It's just an amazing restaurant. In Boston, uh, there are just there, there you know too many places to to mention. Um, you know, Lydia Shire still uses our product at her restaurant at Scampo. Um, John, before uh, I let you go, sorry. I have to ask you this. Sure. What is the most one or two extraordinary dishes in your lifetime of visiting chefs and cooks that used your product and that blew your mind when you tasted how someone imagined your products in a dish that turned out to be so irresistible? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is Monsef Medeb's uh, foie gras terrine at... Um, at Les Baillets. Yeah. Just blew me away. He used uh, he used our orange oil in his in his uh uh foie gras dish. And you wouldn't have tasted and gone, oh orange. You would have said, there's a whole other dimension here. What's right. going on? And that's he understood that subtlety. And, uh, and it was that was kind just, of and it was that kind of uh, expertise and exquisiteness that ultimately led to honors from things like the James Beard Foundation and other organizations. So you 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 are right. that. That's right. And and last but not least, I have to ask you about the notion of irresistible. Your products are truly irresistible. They're beyond excellent, and you make them so consistently at that Same. level. How important is that for anybody that's dreaming of going into a food business for the next whatever next is? How important is that quality message? Uh, you know, I think it's really important. I think, um, you know, it, you know, there, there's a lot of mediocre stuff, whether it's in food or anything else. It, you know, mediocrity is pretty easy to mm -hmm. <laughs> to come by. I think, you know, understanding what it is that you want to do and and doing the best that you can do is really really important. Yeah. Uh, it, it might not be the most economical way of going about things, but if you're doing the right thing, people will see it. But let me and ask you, John. Will, on that right there, what you're saying right there, I'm going to stop you. It may you say it may not be the most economical, but in the end, isn't it the real? Isn't it truly the most economical? Isn't it if you use higher quality products and ingredients that you use less of it, right? You use less of it, even if it's more yes. expensive, you're using less, yep. and your customers and your will know the difference. They'll taste the difference. That's one of the things that I have to. Learn. And you're absolutely. And I and I agree with that. And in in, in in the end, that is the most economical. Uh, I think a lot of times people can't see it that way. Uh, it, it takes a while to get there. Yeah. But when you get there, um, you you know it. And 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 quite frankly, in order to get there, it, it you can't just be driven by money. It, you have to be mm -hmm. you know you have to be driven by by that passion, by well, that, that kind of set kind of satisfaction that comes from knowing that you did a great job and that people appreciate it and can do something wonderful with it. Right. And then in the end, like there's a great Italian restaurant that I get. The food is unbelievable. Right. And they put down the table, oil and vinegar, you know, they put it on the table with some bread and whatever. And the balsamic vinegar is like water runs all over the whole plate. It's horrendous. Right. You know, everyone's like, Oh, you got to go to this restaurant. Yep. I won't go back because of that. Like, I'm like, where does that come from? Oh, it's in the right. plastic jug and it's in the, I asked the guy, what, what is that oil? Or I mean, the vinegar. Where does that come? Oh, it's in a big jug and it's in the back. And I'm like, a jug? No, no, it was in a bucket. It came in a bucket. 
And I'm like, that's it. That ruined the whole thing for me. Because even though they're like, oh, you use too much. You know what? You would use one third the amount if it was good stuff and it was delicious. And I think that, Jennifer, that's what I even write about in the book, right? It's like you can't. You can't go there. You, the, the, even though it's cheaper, it's like using cheap toilet paper. I mean, I, right? You're using more of it. I don't even know, or, or bounty or whatever, or paper towels. You're using, <laughs> you're using more of it, right? I, you, you, you're absolutely right. You, I can't, I, you know, can't argue with anything you said. You, I, I totally agree with you. And, and what's really nice though is, is that the American public gets it. Yes. More and more. They are more. Yes. More and more. Jennifer, you need to get it now. I know. I'm working on it. <laughs> John, do you remember SS Pierce? I do. I do remember SS Pierce. SS Pierce, Michael, was one of the first specialty food companies. And they've gone the way of the dodo bird. And by the way, we need to reload you, John, because as my grandmother, uh, Mrs. Sawyer, would say, because you can't fly on one wing. <laughs> But S.S. Pierce was the first specialty company and they produced, they had everything from spirits and their own branded spirits. They curated a certain quality level and you really had that quality price equation worked out just right. You want to know what I think, John? I think we are ready for another iteration of something like that where the curated price quality, it'll be above where Trader Joe's is, but it won't be Williams Sonoma. It'll yep. be somewhere in the middle. And we'll wipe out the Whole Foods on one side. We'll wipe out the Trader Joe's on the other. And I think we're going to end up in this brand new category, this sweet spot of, of, of essential things that are just yep. high quality enough at the right price where everyone right, can except, eat well and, and, and cook well. Right. I agree. Make it accessible to everybody, yep. or to, to most people. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's, that's a really good point. I think that's where we're headed. I'd love to see SS Pierce name come back. Maybe somebody else would have to bring it back, but uh, I don't think it exists anymore. But I'll bet you anything. I will bet you $100 right now that if we went to New England and started knocking on doors, we wouldn't have to knock on 100 mm -hmm. doors before we found right. some packaging still in a spice cabinet, still in a liquor cabinet, oh, wow. with the SS Pierce label, because that's you're right. how we are in New England. That's right. I love it. That, no, you're right. Whether it's an old bottle of Madeira wine or an old, an old can of, uh, of um, uh, oh, I mean, they even had canned goose fibre. They had yeah, old or, or, or a product you use scantily, like, um, like a powdered mustard or something. Right. <laughs> that's right. John Boyajian, right. the website you, John. that you share all your goodies with customers is boyajianinc.com. Can we find you still in places like Williams Sonoma? Uh, you know, you um, yeah, we're, we're not currently in Williams Sonoma. Williams Sonoma has, um, and I think wisely, uh, done mostly private branded products. Yeah. Uh, their their products are pretty much under the Williams Sonoma label. Or, or they are they under California um, uh, labels because that's that's sort of their identity. Um, but our products are still found in a number of stores, whether it's Whole Foods or Solatab or um, I mean, it's a number of places around the country. So there you go, Solatab. Go in and ask for your 
and get it. Right? I'm sorry. So we'll go to the Sir stores. They'll, they actually, by the way, Sir Latab right now, you can get it on Instacart. I can oh. go on Instacart and go oh. get. I, I'm going to do it today. I'm going to get some Boyage. I am. Yes, I am. That's what I'm going to do. And when your they, book comes out, they have week. And my book comes out next week, John. I want to make sure you don't don't. If you go to Barnes and Noble, you'll be able to see it. If you could get out of the house, there it is. Isn't that gorgeous? That is just gorgeous. Great. I don't know what's more gorgeous, that or Jennifer. I'll stick to Jennifer. John Boyage and I absolutely love you. It is so making my heart happy to have you here with us. I can't thank you enough for making time to visit with us and to remind us that it will take passion. And we all have to strive for excellence. That's right. Well, thank, thank you, John. You so my real pleasure. Thank you both. What a doll baby. Isn't he the greatest? He's a doll baby. He changed the food world in America. You know what I'm learning right now? No. That there's a little thing here that tells me how many people like this and all these reactions, right? And I'm looking and I see a couple of chefs on there. There's a couple of big guys here that are looking at us. Wow. Oh, my God. And my mother-in-law. I can't do that. I'm a little more worried about my mother-in-law saying this. She's still on. How do we know? Listen. Boyajin has been my friend a long time. Nice guy. You want to know, you want to know what it takes to be great in this business? You would you would do far worse than to, to, to I like the way, listen, the way he did his business is the same way I did mine. I didn't have a goal for Food and Beverage Magazine. My goal was just to be the best, right? And to do the best that I could do and have one person get get, get inspired and, and innovation. And, you know, was never like, okay, we're going to have 12 million readers and we're going to rock the world. That's why, I mean, look at me, right? I'm not the guy. Um, but we're happy that we're where we are. Don't get me wrong. We're happy that you and I can sit here right now and you against a brick wall and Luckily, the warden let you out and to sit against that wall, and you could eat box stew all day long. I'm going to say goodbye, and I'm going to go snacking my way. But, you know, one of the things about the box stew that I have to point out is, like John Boyajin's products, there are local and regional companies in Japan mm -hmm. that have been making the same kind of snack for generations that is it. so ethereal and magnificent and mm -hmm. finessed. Mm -hmm. that, that you just you are made lighter and brighter all right, all right. come on back down come on back I'm down. telling you I'm all telling right everybody you. we'll see you tomorrow or the next day we don't know yet Kiss please your hug your kids count your blessings and eat some food with someone you love <laughs>